todo el mundo. Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. Writer-director Mick Garris joins me today on the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast, and I'm so pleased to have him on because we've been friends for years, but we haven't talked for ages, and um, he's going to fill us in on his appearance in the new Stephen King documentary, King on Screen, but he will also give us a glimpse, hopefully, into his background in music. He started off as a teenage journalist, much like Cameron Crowe, but Mick was also the lead vocalist and songwriter for a prog rock band in the 1970s called Horse Feathers. So I'm really excited to talk to him about all that and more. So let's get him on the line. Well, hey, Mick, welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Oh, it's great to be here and great to see you again, Stacey. It's been a while. Yes, you and I have been friends for a very long time, and we have so many things in common, including a love of music and Stephen King, and (laughs) yeah, we'll get into that in horror, but um, before I do get into the new documentary, I want to start off by talking about your career in music, which began with journalism, so how did that all start? Well, I wouldn't call it a career since I never made a living doing it, but (laughs) okay, a vocation. (laughs) Yeah, well, or an avocation, but um, I I always loved music, was into music uh, from the time I got my first transistor radio when I was in junior high school, back when we called middle school junior high school. Um, And uh, I started writing uh, reviews for the San Diego door when I was 15 or when I was 17 and, and Cameron Crowe was 15. We both wrote for the door. He went on to make movies about music, whereas I went on to make horror movies. Um, but I always loved it. I, I, I wrote reviews for the high school paper first. And then I published my own publication called Arthur, the magazine when I was 18 years old, which was music, film, books, arts, all of that sort of thing. What was and the then, title? Uh, Arthur? Was that Arthur? King Arthur? 
Arthur the Magazine, basically uh, in Hard Day's Night, George Harrison has asked what they call that haircut. So that and the, um, the Kinks album, Arthur, was influential, although that might have come along a little later. Uh, and there was a, a potted plant in Mad Magazine that would show up occasionally that, uh, in various panels called Arthur. So it just sounded like a very unlikely, silly name for a magazine. So it, what's the name of your magazine, Arthur? Yeah. Brilliant. Well, um, so you had started that just out of high school, so you self-published it, but I had heard on another podcast that your first interviewees were your heroes, your musical heroes, the Moody Blues, so how did that come That's about? Right. Yeah, well, they were playing, I was based in El Cajon, which is a suburb of San Diego, <clears throat> and the Moody Blues were playing in town, and I called their record company uh, PR department and uh, set up an interview with them and interviewed them in their dressing room after their show. And um, they were my idol. I mean, of course, the Beatles always are first over everything else. But the Moody Blues just really struck a chord with me, if I may say, um, In Search of the Lost Chord being one of their major albums. But uh, I just fell in love with this combination of rock and classical and classical style orchestral music that was their Days of Future Past album that had Tuesday Afternoon and Nights in White Satin, which were their first really big hits after Go Now, which was a very different lineup for the band featuring Denny Lane at that time. Um, and uh, so that was my first interview and I published it in the school paper. And then for Arthur the Magazine, I interviewed people like Poco and well, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, and again, those were those two were for the San Diego door, and they were lined up by the editors of the newspapers. So I'm 16, 17 years old, interviewing a drunk and weeping uh, Janis Joplin right before the show, and um, you know it was it was an amazing experience. And I thought it was my imagination, but I was backstage watching the show, and my younger brother was out front watching the show. And Janice seemed to be turning to me and singing towards me. And I thought, that's got to be my imagination. But my brother said, why was Janice constantly turning and singing to you? <laughs> and it was, we didn't speak afterwards, but um, it, was, it was a really wonderful experience. Wow. Like, but was that awkward? Or I mean, what do you mean? Like weeping? What was she doing exactly? She was just so drunk. Did you get any usable quotes? Oh, yeah. She was very drunk uh, and crying because of saying she was uh, saying things like, I ain't got no man, man. My band is my man, man. And, uh, you know, just very lonely. And, and it was really kind of touching and heartbreaking how open she was about it. And that probably had a lot to do with the Jack Daniels bottle in her hand. That's right. And also Jimi Hendrix. Now, what was it like to talk to him? Very brief and very cool and very aloof. Um, I asked him a few questions and uh, he, obviously he was a musician, not an interview subject. And uh, at least in my case, um, was not very interested in talking. So I let it be. 
What was the uh, subject? Was he promoting which album was he promoting? He was, on the, he was on the Band of Gypsies tour. So it was the first tour after the Jimi Hendrix experience. And so Buddy Miles was playing drums and, and it was a very different experience. I think he, you know, uh, talked a little bit about the new band, but he, there was really nothing magical that I have to report from that experience like there was with the Janis Joplin one. Well, uh, your love of music led you, I guess, maybe inevitably into being in a band yourself, which was called Horse Feathers. It took us 50 years to put out our first CD. <laughs> so we got a bunch of uh, our best demos from the day because we never got a recording contract. And a couple of years ago, we actually remixed it, overlaid some new uh, instrumental and vocal tracks and put it out. And uh, it's out there at horsefeathersmusic.com. But uh, the band name, basically, well, our guitarist in particular had an amazing sense of humor and loved the Marx Brothers. And so one of their big movies was Horse Feathers. Horse Feathers also meant bullshit without cussing. Oh, horse feathers. <laughs> yeah. And it was also a word that you would rarely come up against in the 70s, which made us think, you know, if somebody reads the word horse feathers, they'll think of us. So those were the reasons behind it. Plus, in our early days, we were kind of country rock before we very quickly became a progressive rock band. And so it had a little of the, the horse country flavor to it. Okay. Um, yeah, that makes sense. But more than that, it was very playful. Uh, you know, most progressive rock bands were deadly serious. Uh, and we were trying to put a more playful spin on complicated rock music. You said Horse Feathers was, became kind of evolved into prog rock. Um, but I listened to a podcast interview with you a couple of years back where you kind of liken that term to elevated horror, which I know you're right. not a fan of that term. So can you talk about that? And uh, so are you saying that Horse Feathers was not prog rock or what? Well, no, would we, you describe? we were definitely prog rock. Um, you know, it's not the equivalent of elevated horror because it just means it's progressive in that it's adventurous and it doesn't play with regular time signatures. It, it It's more complicated than a three chord structure, although we had no qualms about writing three chord songs as well. But we wrote Symphony for a Million Mice, which was an instrumental that was 12 minutes long that uh, mm. went through lots of different movements and all. And, and we did complexity, not just for jerking off, but because of the love of the musical structure. And, and it's the way primary, our primary composer was our keyboard player, Bill Burney. And he was not, he didn't listen to everything on the radio. So he was a very original composer and was not much influenced by what else was out there. And so he, his musical thought patterns were more complex. And then we started getting into that and, you know, doing movements within songs and changing tempos and but usually with a sense of humor you know the lyrics were very playful i was often the lyricist and andy robinson our drummer was also a lyricist and we all had a really good sense of humor and our band 
a lot of progressive rock bands, you would go and see them and they would just stand there and play very seriously, no, no patter or anything, but uh, yeah, we were, I think of yes yeah. with Rick Wakeman and his robes yeah. and all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, he was very theatrical, but the, and the, that was a great band to watch as well, but there were others and gentle giant was, I think the best progressive rock band ever. And they were great to watch. But we kind of added in a Bonzo Dog Band sensibility. So okay. it was as if Gentle Giant met the Bonzo Dog Band. So it was, we never took ourselves so seriously that we felt we were elevated above the audience that was the rock and roll audience that was out there. Because there wasn't an audience for progressive rock in the United States in the 70s, other than very limited. Yeah, I mean, you opened for some bands that were not prog rock so you know maybe the audiences were like what's this when you came yeah. on can you talk about like some of the bands that you toured with or opened for well we never toured with anybody but we okay. opened for the kinks which is like the highlight of yeah of we did but we didn't treat ourselves like a progressive rock band we treated ourselves like an entertaining band you know we were putting on shows but we did open for people like renaissance who were more progressive rock and uh you know, Captain Beyond and, you know, various people who were one hit wonders, but mostly because of the nature of our music and being based in San Diego, um, most touring bands would already have another act touring with them. But the biggest opportunity, this is in the days before there were cell phones and we were in our rehearsal studio, downtown San Diego, which was over a boxing ring. And, uh, owned by Jerome of Jerome's Furniture. He, uh, and people were trying to call us, but there were no cell phones and no, uh, no telephone in our studio to open for Queen at the sports arena because oh, their, wow. their act had canceled at the last minute. So who knows what would have happened if we'd opened for Queen at the sports arena in San Diego. That mm. would have been the show. But yeah. uh, well, tell me a little bit more about how this album came to be so many years after the band disbanded. I'm kind of curious about that. Well, you know, we've remained best of friends, <clears throat> although our, our guitarist passed away from a brain aneurysm in 93. So there was never any chance that there would be a reunion performance or anything. We see each other uh, regularly every year or two. And Bill, the keyboard player I was telling you about, um, he is kind of the keeper of all the old recordings. He was our engineer much of the time. And so he had all these old recordings from the seventies and he's, he started remixing them and talking about what about if, well, he would just start laying in keyboard tracks and emulations of other instruments and the like, and thought, let's freshen these up because they still sound really good but let's add some new vocals let's add some new instrumentation and so we would record the vocals down in san diego at our drummer andy robinson's place and he has a studio in his home as well and basically decided let's just choose an album's length and put it out on cd and this this was after we we recorded a couple of new songs about 10 years ago you know, without our guitarist, and we never played them together. We did it, Bill is in the Seattle area, Andy's in San Diego, I'm in LA. So 
we never learned the songs fully because they were assembled piece by piece from different places. So that was the first thing where we actually did made new music together. And then a few years later, the decision to go ahead and put it out, not to make money, but to have it there. And, you know, people have bought it. I sold out the first batch of them. And, and you know, sometimes I'll take them to conventions with me along with my books to see if anybody wants them. And, you know, it, it, it's just great to have it for our history that, that friends and family can reference it as well. Yeah, that's really fun. And you do have so many talents. You make music, you write books, you make films, you have a podcast, you, well, everything. We'll get, get into a lot of that. Um, but after Horse Feathers disbanded, you started working as a receptionist for George Lucas, which yeah. I think is just really a cool job title. Um, but that led to your career as a film director, though not right away, in sort of a roundabout way. And um, you started off directing, making up featurettes and a couple of horror shows and movies. But uh, since we are here mainly to talk about Stephen King, I want to jump ahead to your Ooh. first feature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's his name? Uh, so you he wrote the screenplay for Sleepwalkers directly, yeah. which is maybe a little unusual for a Stephen King movie. Um, it was his first original screenplay to be produced. Okay, yeah, that's really cool. So how did that come about and how were you introduced to him? The studio, Columbia Pictures, uh, was looking for a director for Sleepwalkers. And they were meeting with a bunch of different people. And my agents at CAA at the time were pushing me as someone because I really knew Steve's material. I had done Critters 2 was my first feature as a director, but I'd also done Psycho 4 for Showtime. And little did I know that they shared some thematic uh, elements, particularly the mother-son relationship. So King had director approval and they had uh, sent him a television movie by someone else uh, and Psycho 4. And he really liked it, but they hired the other director and the other director started rewriting it himself and taking it to someplace way far. If your movie's called yeah. Stephen King's Sleepwalkers, the studio is not going to be happy if Stephen King sees the scripts and says, this is not my Sleepwalkers. Exactly. And, and that happened, but they hired the other guy that went into development and the like, and they ended up parting ways because he was taking the movie in a direction nobody else wanted it to go. So I, the, I'd completely forgotten about it. And months after the fact, they called me in for another meeting, a lunch meeting, and nobody told me, but they moved me into my office <laughs> that day. They hired me without telling me they were hiring me. And, and so they led me into my office and said, you start prep today. And so I was in pre-production right away. Um, and King had loved Psycho 4 and said, I, I could never imagine a movie with a four in the title that was any good. And exactly. Yeah, that's a really, it's still a cult favorite, I think. Don't, you know, isn't that, don't you get a lot of people still talking to you about that one? I do, you know, more than when it came out, because at the time, Showtime was very tiny. It wasn't near HBO. And so the good news was that if it sucked, nobody would know. The bad news 
there wasn't any bad news because if it was good, people would talk about it. And if it was bad, nobody would notice. So Right. Now, Stephen, like yourself, is a great lover of music, and um, oh, yeah. he had or has, I don't know if it's still around, the Rock Bottom Remainders, his hobby band. I don't think they've played together since his big accident in 91. Okay. Yeah, but yeah, he and a bunch of other writers uh, went on tour. Mike Bloomfield was their musical director, so they had real, real talent there behind them, but, um, you know, they had... Uh, they played around and all of their shows were um, charities, mostly for libraries or bookshops, independent bookstores, things like that. Um, and it was a lot of fun. They played oldies and I saw them play a couple of times and was at one of their rehearsals, but I was never invited to join the band. But uh, Well, do, do you and um, Stephen, do your musical tastes overlap? Do you like a lot of the same music? <laughs> They overlap. We like some of the same music. He's not a prog rock fan. One of the big overlaps was Crowded House. We both love Crowded House. But he's he listens to ACDC when he's writing. And, uh, you know, he's really... Relate. Into, yeah. So he's really into more aggressive music than me. I like it occasionally, but not as a full diet. I'm not a metal guy. I'm not a thrash guy. But... Um, and I don't listen to music as much as I used to, but I also don't want to be a person who only listens to music from my youth. And th that is always a danger. Everybody's favorite music is what they were listening to when they were 12 to 15, you know? Sure. Yeah. Well, there is a lot of great music out there now, so it can yeah. be found. Yeah. And it's weird because the music industry is so fractured now, it's hard for anybody to make a living making original music. And when you do have a hit, it's probably your first and last. The chances are that if you have a hit, you're not going to have another one. Unless Sadly, yeah, huge. it's really changed a lot. And that's, I understand why concert tickets are so astronomically high now. That's apparently the only way the artist could make any money. Yeah, and I mean... I don't go to live music anymore just because it's a pain in the ass to do it. And it's so expensive that yeah. my passion isn't what it used to be for music. So, Yeah, I see a lot of really good local bands. There's a lot of great hard rock up and comers that are honoring our yeah. favorite music from the 70s and 80s, but with original songs, which is very encouraging. But like you said, it's really, it's sad that it's hard to make a living like my dad did. Um, my dad from The Ventures, for those yeah, listening who may yeah. not know, but yeah. Hit so, after hit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he, that, he made a living at that his entire life. Uh, never missed a tour in Japan for over 50 years, if you can believe wow. that. Yeah, so, but uh, Stephen King likes The Ventures. <laughs> I remember oh, yeah, reading one definitely. of his short stories when I was a kid. I was, I don't know, maybe in my teens i don't know even what the name of the short story but he mentioned the ventures playing on the jukebox and i was really excited and that's wow. one of the things that i think stephen king's writing is very evocative you can smell it you can taste it you can hear it so I, he always kind of brings his stories to life with touchstones that people can relate to, like music, what's playing on the jukebox. And you've also embraced this when adapting his work. And one of my favorite movies of yours is Riding the Bullet. 
which takes place in the 60s. And you have yeah. some fantastic music in that. And I want to know how you got all those great songs and how you even narrowed it down to choose the ones that you did. Yeah, the short story took place when it was written, which was in 1999. But I said it in 1969, just because I thought it had a lot to say about the changing of the eras. It's um, perfect. Thank you. Uh, not many people have seen it, but it's out there. <laughs> well, maybe they will now. Hopefully. But yeah, it's set in 1969. So all of the songs are from 1969. I think Pushing Too Hard is from 1966, but you would have heard it in 69. Uh, it was just at the time right before getting classic rock songs became outrageously expensive. Because the bands weren't making money anymore, the way they were making money was by licensing music to movies and television. But we got in there just in time, and we have a, had a favored nations cost, uh, clause that everybody who had a song in there, we licensed it for $15,000. So the, the budget for the movie was pretty low, $5 million, uh, for that kind of movie with movie stars and the like in it was right. very, very tight. Um, so our music budget was pretty low, but we were able to get these songs. And the amazing thing is I had written them into the script without thinking about whether we'd be able to get them or not. And there were only a couple of them that I couldn't get, but one of them was going to be um, Instant Karma by John Lennon to end the movie with, because the last line of dialogue is, nobody lives forever, but we all shine on. Yes. And so that's, uh, we all shine on is the chorus of instant karma. So Yoko Ono actually had to see the movie and saw and loved the movie and gave it her blessing, but they were asking $50,000 for it. So we couldn't afford that. Yeah, that would mean and, that everyone else, because of the favored nations, they would have to get 50,000. Is that how well, that works? That it, if you're under a favored nation's clause, yes, if you agree to that. Yeah. Um, so instead, we use the Young Bloods Get Together, which I think is just as effective. It just doesn't use the phrase that we mm -hmm. end up with. I love the Chambers Brothers song in the, the beginning. Yeah, time. That's so perfect. Yes, I love that movie. <laughs> time has yeah. come today. I watch it every couple of years. It's one of my oh, faves. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It's so, certainly um, the most personal movie I've ever made. Yeah. Really? By far. Oh. Yeah. yeah, it's great. It really shows. And you've got um, Bernie Wrightson doing the artwork. Yeah. It, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's we fantastic. were shooting up in Vancouver and Bernie, we actually brought him up to do all the uh, wall paintings and everything. Um, you know, he, he got a fee for just being there and painting and he had the best time. And I, I so loved Bernie. Such a talented guy, but as sweethearted as he is, as he was talented. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of those horror movies with heart. And that's what Stephen King does. He writes books that have heart and meaning, but they're also horrifying in their own way. Um, now, the, the music that's been associated with a lot of Stephen King films, like the Ramones here. I don't know if you can see. I got yeah, my Ramones I see shirt, on your shirt on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very closely associated with Pet Cemetery, And you mentioned ACDC before, which has a lot of songs in 
uh, maximum, maximum overdrive. Overdrive, yeah. yeah. So, um, but maybe I'm missing some. Are there some scenes in um, Stephen King films that are really tied in with the a song or the music that you can think of? Um, you know, I can only think in terms of what we've used. You know, "Don't Dream It's Over" by Crowded House was used as a very melancholy uh, moment. Uh, it was not scripted that way in The Stand. There's a scene where Molly Ringwald is is burying her father. And um, he had written as counterpoint, the Beach Boys, fun, fun, fun. Hmm. And I love the idea of the counterpoint, but I'd really rather break your heart in that scene than have a heartbreaking scene with a playful Beach Boys song. And so that was one that is one of my favorite combinations of music and visuals in, in anything I've done with King. Um, you know, the, the Shining, I used a Tim Finn song who was in Split Ends and Crowded House before he became a solo artist. But yeah, there's, I don't know how much of what's in the movies he wrote into the scripts, but in our case, you know, uh, the beginning of the stand is also something very music oriented. It's the Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult. And the whole thing was orchestrated. The whole opening was orchestrated to that song. And in fact, on the set, there's no dialogue during when the music is playing. It's all the result of what has happened when the disease has, has devastated the lab in which it was made. And so each of those shots in that montage, I'm playing Don't Fear the Reaper in the background. So everybody feels it and the camera movement moves to it and all of that. That's perfect. Yeah, that really does. Um, that shows in the stand. That was one of my favorite miniseries too. I watched that oh, one a couple times for sure. You'd mentioned The Shining. So I want to kind of get back into that because um, King on screen does give you the opportunity to talk about Stanley Kubrick's version of The Shining and your TV miniseries, which came along later. And that's Stephen King. He prefers he worked on that with you. Right. And yeah, he so, wrote the script for that. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit, because I feel like um, Kubrick's version is, you know, kind of like this paragon of horror movies. And yeah, well, the the point was not to redo it, but to do it from the beginning. It's it's very well known that King was very disappointed with the Kubrick film, but he wasn't the only one. If you look back at reviews in 1980-81, they are virtually all very negative because most of those people had read the book first. Right. And the, the difference between King and Kubrick is, you know, King is warm and Kubrick is cold. Um, it's, his films can be very clinical and analytical and non-emotional. And the heart of every Stephen King story is the warmth of humanity. And none more so than The Shining, which is about the guilt carried by a father whose drunkenness led him to actually break his little boy's arm. So King was always disappointed by it. He'd written a couple of drafts that Kubrick threw out. And, wow. you know, when I saw the movie at a screening three days before it was released, I'd never been looking forward to a movie more than that because Stanley fucking Kubrick and Stephen fucking King together. <laughs> but I was so disappointed because it's one of my favorite books of all time. And 
it just wasn't the book. And now I always say, I love it as a Kubrick film. I learned to love it as a Kubrick film because I could put aside the fact that it's not the King book. But King never liked it. And when The Stand became the most successful miniseries in history, ABC asked him what he wanted to do next. And he said, you know, I'd like to actually do The Shining. So rather than it being a remake, we're going to the roots of the book. And the author of the book writing the screenplay himself. And The Stand was so successful that he asked me, if, well, he said, if Brian Palma doesn't direct this, if he doesn't say yes, would you direct it? Obviously, Brian De Palma, if anybody ever talked to him, did not want to direct television. And I was naive enough to think, <clears throat> hooray, we're going to do the King version of The Shining <clears throat> and not realize that once it was announced, people were online just blasting the shit out of it, just saying before it was made. Just saying, oh, yeah, it, of course. It, yeah. Oh, they're doing it for television with the guy from Wings, with the director of The Stand. Um, but the reviews were even better than The Stand reviews, which were uh, the best reviews I'd ever seen. And it, again, was very successful. But, you know, television is much more of the moment and and much less expensive. But that uh, turned out really well. It was very well received. And, you know, The Stand has had a longer afterlife than The Shining miniseries, but, uh, but it's uh, still one of the things I'm most proud of. It's the only time I've felt like I had a, a budget and schedule that was enough to do it right. So I hope viewers think it was done right. But King was around for most of the shoot and uh, he was writing the Green Mile chapter by chapter while we were shooting the miniseries. Yeah, he had a lot going on. In fact, that's covered in the documentary King on Screen. And Frank Darabont makes an appearance in the yeah. Shining miniseries, right? Yeah, he came out. I didn't know he was coming out to get the rights to do the Green Mile. <laughs> but um, but Frank and I have been friends for years. And yeah, I, I gave him uh, a part with a handful of other writers who were there, David J. Scow and Richard Christian Matheson and Preston Sturgis, son of. And uh, they're all in that costume ball scene and it's a lot of fun. And Frank shaved his beard for the first and last time since he oh, was wow. a teenager. And he would always say he looked like a penis or Uncle Fester. So, <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, yeah that's Frank's a great friend. scene. I love that. Thank you. Well, there's been a lot of um, other documentaries about Stephen King's page two screen adaptations, or at least a few. I guess um, Room 237 would be one of yeah. the most popular ones. And I love that one. It's just so highly entertaining. But um, King on Screen is really ambitious because it covers, I feel like, every adaptation there is, which is a lot. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and you've directed quite a few yourself, which is what, like nine? Yeah, I think eight or nine, <laughs> somewhere around there. Well, and, and a lot of those weren't covered, including Sleepwalkers, which was his first original screenplay. I so noticed I, that. I wonder what yeah. that was all about. Uh, you know, there's only an hour and 45 minutes and you have to you have to make your cuts somewhere. But um, yeah, I mean, 
I, I've done more King than anybody. We haven't worked together in a while, although I'm, I'm working on a project now that's based on one of his pieces. But ah. until, uh, until the strike is over, we won't know. Whether of course, but yeah, over. fingers crossed on that. Now, how did um, the director, Daphne Bywear, now, did she approach you about this or did someone recommend you? Um, how did, well, what she, made you think that this was the one to do, really, this documentary? She's a huge, huge fan. Okay. Um, the funny thing about her that people here don't know is she was a huge child star in France. Oh, I did so not she, know that. Yeah, she was a, an actress and, and really popular uh, in France, but became this fanatical Stephen King fan. So she wrote that opening dramatic sequence that opens the film before it becomes a documentary that has probably a hundred Easter eggs from Stephen King stories in it. I don't even know what I am. I'm I'm a blind man in this convenience store. And uh, yes, you I'm are. One, I'm, I'm sure I'm out of one of the stories, but I don't know which one. <laughs> but there, there are people from movies from, you know, Amy Irving is in it and, and, you know, just lots of people, either directors or actors from Stephen King projects who take part in, in this little dramatic opening sequence that is really just for ultra king fans because they will be able to spot oh there's this strawberry pie from thinner there's this there's that you know yeah i would be able to catch half that stuff myself and i consider <laughs> myself a fan but i'm not a probably not that nerdy yes <laughs> i know and i i've read them all but i i don't recognize all of those <laughs> easter eggs so I'm yeah, well, you that. mentioned that, um, well, she assembled quite a, a crowd of people to talk about Stephen King. Does she have Stephen King in the documentary or? King is not in it. They tried, mm. um, but it's hard to get him to to participate in these things. And and I understand why, you know, he he's approached all the time by people. And it's embarrassing to just sit and talk about your own stuff. Um but I hope I haven't embarrassed you today. No, ben. no, no, no. Who, <laughs> who knows about uh, what his feelings are? I can't speak for him, but I know that there's not a day go by that he doesn't get asked to be in a documentary or write an introduction to a book or blurb somebody's novel, you know? So, I'll bet. so uh, it, it's, it's a tough get. So I know you haven't seen the documentary yet because I did finally to... see it. The you other did. Time. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Great. So let tell the listeners who are listening to this podcast right now who else they can expect to see in the documentary talking about their King on screen adaptations. Well, probably more than anybody, Frank Darabont, and rightly so. Um, he's throughout. Taylor Hackford is in it. Tommy McLaughlin, who did Sometimes They Come Back, is in it. You know, the just the guy who made Everything's Eventual, the guy who made 1408, the guy who, you know, all of these, think of a Stephen King movie and if the director's still alive, he's probably in it, he or she. Actually, I don't think, was Mary Lambert in it? I don't think she was from Pet Cemetery. No, I didn't. <laughs> I guarantee you that a female documentary director went to a female narrative director to see if she could be in it. But a lot of it has to do with timing, but that exactly. opening scene is actually shot in Maine. They flew me out to Maine and everybody else out to Maine to be in that sequence. So that's perfect. In Maine, what what could be better? 
That's why they did it. Yeah. <laughs> you get that. Soak up the ambiance, right? Yeah. Exactly. Well, uh, King on Screen comes out in theaters on August 11th and um, on demand on September 8th. So, um, but before I let you go, Mick, I have to ask you my standard exit question here on the uh -oh. Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I hope you've been thinking about this. What is your own personal rock and roll nightmare? My personal rock and roll nightmare was when we played at Elysian Park, when Horace Feathers played at a, at a big concert, there were 10,000 people there. And the police would not let our keyboard player drive to get his equipment in his car. And he had to carry his electric piano to the car. He broke through the standards and spent the night in jail for trying to get his equipment. That I'm sharing my friend Bill's rock and roll nightmare. My nightmare is that I would have been in the cell with him. So. Glad that that's all behind you now. Yes. Um, so yeah. Well, you mentioned, um, you know, of course, the the strikes that are going on now have everything up in the air. But um, what do you have going on right now that you can talk about, and where can fans find and follow you online? Um, yeah. Well, first of all, there's always the podcast, which uh, you know we're on every every Wednesday. A new one drops. It's called Postmortem with Mick Garris. Every other week, we interview makers in the genre. And the alternating weeks, we do AMA, which is Ask Mick Anything, where I answer questions from the audience. Um, I told you I'm working on a series based on a Stephen King story. We have a couple of uh, major actors attached to it that we hope will go forward. Clive Barker and I are putting together an anthology series of 10 all new original Clive Barker stories, and we've written the pilot for that. Oh, together. wow. And uh, I have a feature that I had originally written about 30 years ago that Steven Spielberg was interested in doing. And I just recently resurrected it and decided to rewrite it with a new spin on it. And it's set during uh, 1936. So it doesn't have to change that much because it's a period picture, but it's not a horror film. And it's something a lot more um, mainstream, but but uh, still has traces of the outre about it, and it's something I'm I'm excited about it, and it's called Jimmy Miracle, and I'll let you take it from there. Ah, yeah. oh, sounds very interesting. So, um, are you on social media? Can fans oh, yeah, yeah. chime in so, and find you there? Yeah, uh, Mick Garris and the Postmortem Podcast is where we are on Facebook, or just Mick Garris. Um, we're Mick Garris PM on Instagram and on Twitter. All right. Well, thanks, Mick. It was really great to catch up with you and get the lowdown on King on Screen and everything you've got coming up. Well, thank you, Stacy. Always good to see you, and hopefully, hopefully, it won't be so long next time. No, it won't. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. This concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Remember, there's a book series too. All the books are available in paperback, ebook, and audio via Amazon or the Rock and Roll Nightmares website. That's R O C K N R O L L 
nightmares.com. Our official theme song is She's Out for Blood by Fuzzbuster, founded by Lars Cabot. Thank you for listening.